Hi, everybody. So is this, is this mic, this okay? You can hear me. Is it better than the other mics, maybe? It's too loud. Oh, you like my dad. Yeah. Yeah, he's the best mic. Yeah. Other than Michael Jordan. So we're, uh, we're in a series. We've been in a series for like the last four months, and it's kind of it's coming to an end um, here pretty quick. But we're going to be doing a bit of uh, looking into a, a, a historical figure today. And I was with some friends last night, and these friends would, would not define themselves as, uh, as Christians. And I'm always in an awkward position when they ask me, when they know that I'm doing a talk the next day, and they say, Ben, what are you, what are you talking about? And uh, it was just like one of those moments where you can't, can't really tell them. But this person that we're talking about today is, uh, for Christians, he's someone that lots of Christians emulate and want to be like. So that's uh, Peter or the Apostle Peter or St. Peter. That's always kind of talked about in, in Christian circles. But where we're, where we're going to be, or the angle that we're visiting Peter's life from, is we're going to be considering how he experienced um, what he defined as the gospel personally, and then how he talked, or how he kind of gave his rendering of it, or his, his telling of it. So it's kind of a twofold, looking at how he saw it personally, and then also looking at about how he shared it. But I think um, if you're anything like me, you probably need a bit of a fresher on some of the details of his life. So I have some, I have some helpful photos that we'll put up for a second, but just some kind of bare minimum details about who the heck this dude was. He was one of Jesus's first followers, and he kind of became this leader in, in the church. Uh, he was one of the, the two disciples who just utterly betrayed Jesus, and unlike the other one, which who's the other one? Judas, yeah. Peter, Peter betrayed him three times, which, you know, that's just a point, that's for some reason that dawned on me that there's even a difference there. And uh, he was also one of the first people on scene uh, after there was these original female disciples that found uh, Jesus's tomb empty. He was kind of the first person on scene. But in pop culture, there's this uh, series that's out that like every Christian on planet Earth is raving about. You guys know the series? The Chosen. So this is Peter, you know, kind of strapping. Um, that's a photo of him in pop culture if you just need some helpful imagery. Uh, there we have a painting of Peter. So Peter died as a martyr, and he was, he was flipped upside down on a cross. So this is a painting that's in the Vatican. It's coming up. And that's Peter, a graphic uh, image of Peter flipped upside down, dying on, or being put on a cross. And that's, like I think I said that, that's in the Vatican in Rome. And then this is St. Peter's Basilica, and that is the Vatican. So that's an entire, like, uh, temple Greek looking thing that has been given the title St. Peter's uh, Basilica. So before Peter was called Peter, he was also called Simon, which that's why you see all these different references to Simon or Simon Peter throughout the Gospels. And uh, once he started to follow Jesus, Jesus gave him this, this new name, and it was an Aramaic name, and it pretty much translated to rock. Rock, yeah. Uh, so Jesus nicknamed him Rock or, or Rocky, and then in Greek that got translated to Petros, and now we have this name, this name Peter. And some of kind of the, the hot points that people like to comment on about Peter is that he was, he was a character. So he was like quite a, quite a rubble rouser. 
And uh, he wasn't, unlike some of his peers, like maybe like Paul or something, that's another name that gets thrown around in the Bible. He, uh, he, he didn't speak Greek, which was significant back then. And then he wasn't just like this absolute Bible ninja like Paul was. And then occasionally he has these really like hasty and rash descriptions given of him. So we have a, we have a passage, it's Luke twenty two thirty three, And this is a moment where you kind of get a, a view into his personality. So, but he, he replied to Jesus when they're uh, in, this is just before Gethsemane. He says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison, even to death. And that's kind of his personality. He was just, he was so passionate about Jesus. And he was such this emotionally fueled guy that, uh, you know, he would, he would say, anything you need, Jesus, like I'm there for you, which kind of earned him some, some uh, characterizations of rash or, or hasty. And then he was also known for having a bit of a temper and being, or being capable of anger and irritable. So we have another passage that's, uh, it's John 18.10. Then Simon Peter, and this is like, this is real, this is uh, violent. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, uh, servant cutting off his ear. So there you go. That's a, that's a bit of like some characteristics of Peter, which... It's interesting to visit him from those angles because we often hear St. Peter like in that same phrase. So we, we just bring to mind some of the really positive things. We're going to get to that, Darcy. Yeah. yeah. So this, despite all that, uh, Jesus, the, the person that he was emulating his life after, uh, really trusted him. And Peter was perceived to be a leader, even despite all that, amongst his peers, these other disciples. And even in all those states of disgrace, which we just, Darcy named one, uh, Peter, or Jesus continued to trust Peter, which was, which was pretty impressive. So uh, we're going to be heading, we're going to be doing a bit of a deep dive in a second. We're kind of going underwater, then we're going to be coming up, and I promise you we're going to be getting some air in, in a few minutes. Are we up for that? So it's kind of like teaching mode and uh, a little bit of me reading off of a script. We're going to be circulating through some scriptures, and I'm leaning heavily on the teaching of, of someone else, but uh, I think it's worthwhile doing this teaching mode because there's some nuggets in here that are just really fascinating, in my opinion. So let's, uh, let's jump in. So Peter's uh, experience with Jesus was shaped, uh, it very much shaped his rendering of the gospel. And the story of Jesus, uh, it, his story with Jesus is kind of this unique access point into the gospel itself. And that's, that's kind of the case, is that we have the gospel, or what we learned was called the, the, the apostolic tradition. That's how it was easily communicated. But then we meet folks who have been super transformed by the gospel. And there's a, you know, there's a room full of folks right now. So we kind of always have this twofold experience where we have this message, but then we meet people that have... Uh, had to hold this message and then have a have this transformative it has this transformative impact on them now all of a sudden they're like a window into that apostolic gospel tradition uh, message so i want to move through these these different points in peter's story that show us how he had uh, had a unique experience with the gospel and then how it informed how he shared it and i think that's kind of all of our story we have a unique experience with it and it also informs how we share it so uh, in, in Matthew 16, Jesus takes his disciples on a retreat, and they're, they're in Caesarea Philippi, and the retreat leads to this, this breakthrough moment. 
And Jesus asked Simon, Simon, who do you, who do you say that I am? And Simon responds, you are the Messiah. The, the, you're the son of the living God, which is, a, which is an odd, if you have no uh, context for some of those words, that's, that sounds weird. But um, if, if, you know, if, if you know those words, um, Simon is saying something um, quite important. And then we have a slide for this. This is Matthew 16, 17, and 18. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, that's a reference to what I said earlier, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not, be, shall not prevail against it. And then Peter, um, or Jesus and Peter have this moment and there's kind of this real gesture of intimacy where Jesus gives him a nickname and it, which translates to Rocky. And then Jesus is going to use uh, stones like Simon, like this person, and he's going to build his church with those stones and he's going to create this, this is the beginning of his ministry and he's going to create this new family or this new kingdom. And how many of you, or maybe I shouldn't ask that question. So oftentimes Jesus is perceived to be a carpenter, but um, a better translation that I've been hearing is that he's a craftsman. And in that area, there was the usage of a bunch of stones. So it's more likely that Jesus was probably uh, what in Greek would be called a tecton. So it's this craftsman and the likelihood is that he uh, was using stones. So what happens is that Jesus uh, has this moment, this intimate moment with Peter and then Peter invites him into his family. And then the family gets overhauled to not just be a family that's focused solely on the family business, which was fishing. But they end up becoming like this hub in their community where folks are landing in there and getting sent out of there. And it's uh, in Greek, we would call that an oikos. It's like this family that is on mission together. And it's, it, was, it was odd in that day. And it continues to be odd in this day. And then Jesus, the story progresses, and Jesus went on to tell um, them that he was, he told them like the fate of his life. And he said, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suffer and die, and then I'm going to raise again. And then this is what Darcy said. Guess what Peter does? What does he do, Darcy? He rebukes him. Yeah, there you go. Right on. So Jesus rebukes him, and then he responds with this image. He says, and we have a slide for this, Noah, it's 1623. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good paraphrase. He says, uh, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me for you're not setting, uh, not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And that's a, that's kind of a vehement uh, response to Peter, where it's no longer just this total like intimacy, we're best friends. But we see how Jesus actually has, um, he's an individual, and he's kind of doing his own thing, and he's inviting Peter to even follow him in this moment. And that word hindrance, uh, it, it literally means stumbling stone, which is another reference to this, this language that's to do with stones and, and building, and it's, um, I'm going to butcher the word in Greek, but it's scandalon. And Jesus was telling Simon in that moment, you can, you can either submit, you can take up your cross, and become a building block where you can resist and do it your way and become a stumbling stone. And Peter, um, like we've been talking about, was really familiar with what it was like to be a stumbling stone and a building block. And uh, we can think of these occurrences. And just to move through a couple, 
uh, of these moments where he was kind of scared or, or cowardly. Uh, he, he was invited to walk on water, but he sank. Uh, he came to Jerusalem with Jesus, but then he fled to the Garden of Gethsemane. He followed Jesus into the courtyard of Caiaphas, then denied him three times. But in, in spite of all that, Jesus met Peter on the shores of, of the Sea of Galilee and encouraged him to be the shepherd of his flock. And Peter repeatedly uses these images of building blocks. And when Peter and John were arrested, this is what uh, Peter said to the Sanhedrin. And this is, we have, another, we have another chunk of scripture. Like I said, we're going deep, but we're going to come back up in a few minutes. So, yeah, I'll, I'm going to, you guys can look there, but I'm going to look here. So I got, because I got it on here too. If I'm confusing you at all. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he's saying this in front of a, a group of religious leaders. And, and watch out for that stone and builder's language again. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means has this man been healed? Let it be known that, all, that to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. And then many, many years later, uh, Peter is writing to these small churches overseas in, in modern-day Turkey, which was then Asia Minor. And listen to how he describes the, the good news to them. So this is, I believe, the last side. Yeah, 1 Peter 2, 4 to 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but those who don't believe, that's the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And we're, I'm seeing yawning, so we're, we're coming up, we're coming up for air. So in sum, with, with all that said, all like that, diving into uh, Bible verses, uh, Peter was a, was a failure totally from the get-go, and then he became a leader. And the, the gospel in his eyes was primarily about restoration. It's that numerous times he's just being restored back to kind of dignity and um, to a place where he can contribute again. And he... Uh, what, what becomes his interest is uh, what Jesus first inviting him into as a stone is that he wants to go and build other people up as stones to be these building blocks in this, in this human project of a kingdom that God's building. Okay, we're up for air. Like, we're done there. So what's, what's really interesting for me to consider personally is that um, this figure, Peter, uh, multiple decades later, these, these letters emerged that he wrote. So they're, they're penned by, by Peter. And uh, the content of these letters, they, they point to the, like, the depth of conviction that Peter had about this restorative power. 
And this is, this is what I like. I like this whole stuff called restorative power that Peter really believed that. And it's, but unlike then, it centered, it was kind of more focused on a relationship with Jesus at that point. But um, what we discover in these letters is that it's centered around something new. Like later in Peter's life, he uses this new language to describe this restorative force. And it's what he calls uh, the, a living hope, a living hope. And that might be some familiar language for the rest of us. And uh, this fact that people need hope wasn't a newsflash for Peter back in the ancient world. And it's, it's kind of a newsflash for us in the modern world, actually, that we need hope. Like, I think in the last 80 years or something, psychology has headed towards that end, is that literally humans, they, they need hope to survive. Uh, but the only language that Peter has to talk about when someone has this encounter with that living hope and that they're starting to hold it, he, he has this language and we can, throw the, we can throw the passage up and it doesn't necessarily have the best association today. But he says it's, it's as if you've been born twice. It's like it's your second birth. So when you've been, when you've been engaging with this living hope, something happens where you're, you're like born again. And like I said, that, that doesn't, that might um, feel really good and familiar to some, but that might have baggage for other folks. Uh, so he, in this passage, 1 Peter 1, he, he introduces himself, and then he directs his audience, which is these Christians in, in modern-day Turkey that are undergoing this, this real wave of, of violent persecutions. And Christians in the early church were odd folks. They were adamant on gathering together. And when they gathered together, they even used weird language, what we translate now as to love feasts. So that's how Christians gathered. And the, the Roman and Greek authorities just looked down at these Christians' communities with suspicion. It's like, what are these people doing? And they, they just don't follow the contours of our culture and our society. And it would be, I think it would be something similar to as if we, somebody in our community just took a stance against like Thanksgiving and Christmas and said, we want, we want nothing to do with Thanksgiving and Christmas. And then they were joyful about it, which makes you like, you know, it makes you a little bit angry. But what started happening is that these authorities were looking on these communities with suspicion. Then there was these waves of violence, of violent attacks towards them. And these, and in this passage, are, is Peter writing to a community these, in Asia Minor. And he, he thinks that they need two things. And he thinks that he needs two things. And these two things emerge out of 20 years of kind of pastoral, pastoral living where he's starting communities. And, uh, and they're, they're just, they're interesting things. So, and Peter is also, he's, he's a wise person. Like, I don't think he's just some kind of um, idiot. Like there's, there's, there's depth to him. And so the first thing, and we can read the passage. Praise be to the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this mercy, he has given us new birth. That's like your second, your second birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And um, it's interesting that he, he chooses language of living hope. So he doesn't just say like a, a benign hope or something. He calls it a living hope. So it's this dynamic hope. It's not, it's not dead, it's, it's dynamic, and there's vitality to it. And he says that people's transformation into a second, becoming a second, better, best version of themselves is linked to the, the vitality of this hope. So just a quick word on hope, a quick story, and I, I think this is a fascinating story. 
Uh, Victor Frankel. Is that a name that any of you know it, Jade? Yeah, he was. Uh, Don't, you're, you're going to start giving away the details of the story. <laughs> okay, well, Victor Frankel, he might be familiar to you guys. Um, I was just learning about him, so I'm going to kind of be following some details that uh, I created. But he was a Holocaust survivor, and Jaden spared the details, thankfully, for the rest of us. And he was also a, a Jewish psychologist, and he, he lived in Austria in the 20th century. And this is a photo. We have a photo of a book. That's a photo of him. Great. So that's Viktor Frankl. That's a young Viktor Frankl. And then this is a book that he wrote um, that my favorite scholar said is the, the best piece of work in the last 50 years on hope. And I think, I think you'll start to see why. So half of the book is his story. And uh, he lived in this small town in Austria. And then when he was about 20 years old, he and his wife were, were captured by, by the Nazis. And then he was deported to this ghetto where he stayed for uh, a year and a half. And I'm not sure if that's Poland's like Warsaw ghetto or what. And then he was deported from the ghetto uh, where he stayed for that one year. And he was deported into a, a concentration camp. And this, I think this was the first concentration camp ever. It was kind of like the the template that the rest of them were built off of. And it was called uh, Dachau. You guys probably know that, Dachau. And uh, after two and a half years in, in captivity, by his captors being the, the Nazis, he, it was only him and his sister from this vibrant Jewish family that were only left alive. And the, the first half of his book is his story, but then the second half is, is what he learned while he was in captivity. And uh, he comments on how people manage to survive through these camps. So he's, a, he's, a, he's like an academic mind. He's like a psychiatrist. And uh, interestingly, he, he himself survived, survived by being true to his kind of academic nature. So he was a psychiatrist. And, and then when he, when he got captured, he was just recently out of school. So when he was in these camps in the evenings, he would, he would operate like having therapist sessions with people. So he would be in these camps, and then after a days of labor, which is unusual for him, he's an academic, he would honor his craft and his interest and have people in the camp come into his room, and he would do these uh, therapist sessions with them. And uh, it was how he found purpose with his, with his presence in these camps. And it's, it's like super powerful what he did there. So he would have these, these people into his room, and they would tell him, how they're doing and, and how they're surviving. And then he would take their notes and he would stuff them under his, under his mattress, like, like kind of a, he nerded out on psychiatry and, and being a therapist. Uh, and then what, what fascinated him was how people dealt with the trauma and the, the horror of staying in a concentration camp. This is what turned his crank, is that he wanted to discover how in the world do people um, stay in these concentration camps and come out in different spots with different degrees of health. And he commented on this trauma. And he said, life in a concentration camp, it's like, it's like having life's events condensed into a really short time. So there's a series of, of events that can happen in someone's life. But when you're in a concentration camp, they, they come into focus and they happen in a really short span and they're infused with a, with a bunch of horrific experiences. So the, these are just some of the lists. You would, you would lose your home if you went to a concentration camp. You'd likely lose your spouse. You, at some point, you'd be disconnected from your kids and your house and your career. 
And these, this is happening so that, and even with that, like the accomplishments of your career, which that's a real place where folks find identity. And these, that whole span was happening in just a matter of sometimes like weeks for people once they got off the train and, and you know their fate. So it, what intrigued them was how people dealt with that. And he said that those that were able to survive, they had this, uh, they had this ability to understand this um, series of events as, as something greater that had purpose. And then they would also wouldn't let it have kind of the end say on their life. And he cataloged people's responses too. So some people lost hope altogether. Like they just, they, they lost hope entirely. And life just became senseless and random. And then there was people, and those people became like animals and there was no longer like uh, operating in a healthy way with self-control or with free will. It was just animal instinct. Like they were doing whatever they could to stay alive. Then there was this other wake of people that became numb and there was just no processing or emotion and, and life would just crumble for them after. And then there was this one man who developed, and this is what uh, Frankel cataloged, there was this one man who developed a fantasy that the war for certain was going to end this day. And then when the day didn't come, this man in particular, he, he discovered that, that the day didn't come, and then he got a fever the next day and then died. And then he, told, he talked about people who just told themselves lies, like this is living in a fantasy land, and they're going to be okay, and they're going to return to normal life. And then he followed up with those people once they came out of the camp. And sure enough, what they thought was going to be normal life wasn't. And it just ended up being like this horrific um, trauma-invoked disaster. But then he started to talk about people who just had a simple hope. And uh, these people, when the, when the war ended, they could return back to life in a, in a reasonable fashion. Like they could participate and contribute in society again. And, and he talked about this simple hope. And he said some examples. And he said... Uh, there, was a, there was a baker who just simply wanted to bake bread again. He just wanted to bake some bread. And that was a, that was a hope that he held on to. Then he talked about a musician who just, he just wanted to be able to play an instrument again, or he or she wanted to be able to play an instrument again. And they wanted to practice uh, freely. And these hopes were ones that couldn't be taken away by their captors, the Nazis. These were like these individual simple hopes that somehow had this sustaining, sustaining force. And where the book ends, and um, it's, it's, it's Frankel just going on about the value of hope in one's life and how, how that hope can just have this enormous effect. But what Frankel has his thumb on is what Peter assumes about the human condition in this passage. So this is, his, this is Peter's wisdom, where he, he, meets this, he meets this community in suffering and his first impulse is to talk, start telling them about hope. And he says, he says, this is where you get your hope from. from. And uh, it's not a normal hope. It's a living and dynamic hope. So that's kind of the, that's the first, first thing Peter says to them. And then secondly, Peter ties our, our hope to this financial metaphor, which is interesting. So we have another passage. We have the passage continued. It's, you have it there? So where was it? the resurrection from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Which that's exactly like what the people in that Nazi camp had is that they had 
They needed a hope that was not able to be spoiled or faded by their captors or, or circumstances. And uh, one, of, one of Peter's last comments, or I've, I've messed it up here. So one last one. I'll, I'll just I'll end it with this, with one last story. So Peter, uh, he he understood that he was preaching a gospel, but his life was also a window into it. And I heard this story by a, a Christian author years ago, and it was kind of one of those stories that you hear and it it like it stops you, you know. And it's super quick, but I think it's so cool, and I think it comments on where this living hope comes from, and why it has such a force in in somebody's life. So this is a story about Arnold Palmer, which is for some reason I just say it terribly every time. Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer. <laughs> I got to say it like three more times in the story. So. so this is how it goes. You don't have to love golf to get the message behind this story. Arnold Palmer isn't the only name of half tea, half lemonade beverage. He was, an actual, he was an actual guy and was a professional golfer. At one time, he played a series of exhibition matches in Saudi Arabia. And when he finished, the king of the country wanted to present AP with a gift because of how impressed he was by his expertise. Out of humility, Palmer said the gift wasn't necessary and he just expressed how much he enjoyed getting to play in Saudi Arabia and getting to meet the people there. The king indicated his extreme displeasure in not being able to give the famous golfer a gift. So wisely, Palmer reconsidered and told the, the golf club, told the king a golf club, so like a golf club, like an iron, whatever, a wedge. He said that would be an amazing piece of memorabilia to remember this trip by. So fast forward. Fast forward, Palmer's at home, and it's the next day, and a message is delivered to Palmer's hotel room. And on this message, so that was the king of Saudi Arabia, on that message was a title to an entire golf club, a literal golf club, 36 holes, trees, lakes, buildings. And the moral of the story is when you're in the presence of a king, you don't ask for small gifts. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's the dimension of what, what Peter's trying to get at when he talks about a living hope. It's from a, it's from a source that just gives extravagantly like that. And that's, that's the character of the person of this living hope. So what we're doing, this is like literally my, my last kind of paragraph on what I'm looking at here. So what we're doing this month is, is a little bit unconventional. Jordana was, was telling us about it earlier. So we're doing one more week of teaching and we're going to be looking, we're not going to be looking at Peter next week, but we're going to be looking at some other folks and how they defined uh, the gospel and what their experience was it. And there isn't, there's not like, they don't give different definitions of the gospel. It's different renderings of the gospel from their experience. And they, they come at it with a personal testimony. But then in week three, we're not doing this normally, like how we're all just meeting in here. Well, we will be meeting in here, but there's going to be kind of two workshops so one down here and one up there, and we're going to be switching places at some point. But what the workshops are aimed at is in a really simple way, it's, it's going to kind of guide folks through an exercise that may, may or may not be helpful 
in articulating how you, how you personally have interfaced with the gospel throughout your life. And I think what that's going to do, it's probably going to bring some language to your experience if you haven't yet had it. And then ideally, it'll also cast vision for what's kind of next in your life, like build some steam for what God might be up to after you kind of hunker down on an exercise. So for those that are excited for it, awesome. For those that are dreading it, I, I think it's just going to be really simple and nice. But I, to conclude, I have, I have just two, two parting questions. And if, I, if the talk was reasonable, these questions will make sense. So hopefully they do. So um, how, has, how has God been a living hope in your life lately? That's the first one. And uh, yeah, it might just be in your mind or you might forget it or you write it down. How has God been a living hope in your life lately? And then secondly, uh, Peter had these, these initial extremely impactful experiences with Jesus where he thought that Jesus restored his life. He literally thought Jesus saved him from something and restored his life. But then for Peter, the story went on. He, he became like a, a building block that built other blocks. So how do, how do you feel about your, how your story is moving forward? And is it moving forward? And then do you like its direction? So those are kind of the two questions to depart on. And I think we're going to end with another song. And then I'll just pray us out. And I'll remember to pray for Krista too. Uh, so Jesus, thanks that we have a place to land and to dialogue about topics. And uh, yeah, that we're, we're a family here. And I just saw that sense of family with, with kids running around and people participating in, in worship in different ways and how that's welcoming. Whether we sit or stand, it doesn't matter. So uh, I, I pray that um, there's some traction with this topic even this month and that um, we, we, have a, we just get a better take at how extravagant your care and, and love is um, for us individually. So in your name, Jesus, amen.